This is episode number 85 with Martin Hosking of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amorosa, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Nathan Chan here, your host and CEO and publisher of Founder Magazine. Super pumped to share another epic episode with you guys. This one is with the one and only Martin Hosking. Now, this guy is an absolute weapon entrepreneur. So he runs a company called Redbubble. It's an e-commerce platform that allows artists and creators to post their artwork up on the site and Redbubble can turn it into mugs, t-shirts, pillows, you name it. So it's a way for artists, cartoonists, designers, and any sort of creative to monetize their work. And they are absolutely crushing it right now. They've been around since 2007. Uh, they're on track to do over $100 million this year, uh, possibly a lot more. And like Martin is an absolute genius when it comes to startups, growth, uh, you name it. So i I had a really, really interesting conversation with Martin, and the cool thing was I actually got to meet him in person. Redbubble is a Melbourne-based startup, and I went to the Redbubble offices, interviewed him, had a ton of fun, learned a lot of gold, and uh, one of my biggest takeaways was the way that he approaches thinking about Redbubble and treating everything he does as an ecosystem and this world that he's building. And uh, it's such an amazing way that he thinks, I know you guys are going to get a ton of value from this interview. So that's it from me. As always, if you are enjoying these episodes, please do leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud, wherever you're listening to this one from. Please do share the Founder Podcast with your friends, your family, anyone that you know is an entrepreneur, anyone that you think might get value from this. The more we spread the word, the more we can help more people, and that's where it's at. Okay, guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump into the show. 
Look, Martin, thank you so much for having us uh, in your amazing offices here in Melbourne, Australia. We're at the Red Bubble headquarters. Now, do you call Melbourne HQ or San Fran? We call Melbourne HQ. I guess I used to call it. A, it used to be, and we and we still are the notion of that we're actually a, in a, a single office in two rooms. And so the San Francisco and Melbourne work hand in hand together. So uh, you know, the HQ really is split between the two offices, and the board has frequently meets in San Francisco. In fact, over the last three years, probably had more meetings in San Francisco than in Melbourne. And the executive team is also split between the two offices. Awesome. So, look, thank you so much for taking the time, Martin, to speak for me today. The first question I ask every one of our guests to come on is, how did you get your job? How did I get my job? The job of uh, CEO, I guess it is, or the job of founder. The job of founder is really easy to get. You go and you start a company and you call yourself a founder. Uh, the job of CEO can be not that much different. You can sort of, when you start a company, you can really choose your title. In my instance, it was a little bit different because Redbubble, I had two co-founders and so that they were... Uh, uh, Paul Vanzella and Peter Stiles, and uh, and Peter was the CEO, and at the, in that stage I was the executive chairman. After about four years, Peter decided to step away, and I decided to step into the job as CEO. So that's how I got my job as CEO. The job of founder, that one just comes to you by sort of that's sort of a combination of dropped in your lap and you work very hard for it. Mm. So you started Redbubble in two thousand six, right? Mm-hmm. And can you tell us, our audience, like what is Redbubble? What do you guys do? Okay. So Redbubble is a marketplace for independent artists and designers to put up their stuff. Uh, they put up the designs and images onto the site. Then when a consumer orders it, the product is created. So nothing, no product comes into existence, whether it be a T-shirt or an iPhone case or a piece of wall art until a consumer orders it. And that's through a process called print on demand. So it's a way of independent artists and designers from all over the world creatives to get their work out to a new audience who are interested in, in, in that work. Where it came about was originally the concept we were thinking about bringing just that technology print on demand to Australia. Mm. Um, and, you know, print on demand, the first use for print on demand was for personalization. That's where you sort of, you got one pictures of your family on a, on mugs or on Christmas cards or whatever. And that was a site we were starting to think about launching, but we decided that we didn't want it. We weren't interested in it. We couldn't actually imagine using that site ourselves. But what we were really interested in is bringing, allowing this technology to allow independent artists to get their work out. So the first customer for Redbubble was those independent artists, or independent creatives, to get their stuff out there. And once we had that focus, so it's the same technology, almost the same website, but just a different orientation, that was what made it exciting for us. And then I think that made it exciting for other people as well. Mm, so you started in 2006. Self-funded, venture-backed. Tell us about that. Like, yeah, the funding marketplaces are great. So Redbubble is a marketplace, and the great thing about marketplaces is that once they get going, they're very hard to dislodge. The challenge is actually getting them going. Mm. And so there's been a few marketplaces have come out of Melbourne, some which will be familiar to your audience. Places like Envato and Ninety Nine Designs, and and then things which may be more familiar to the Australians. But the problem with marketplaces is getting that first bit of traction. and we, we were lucky because I had a background with, uh, I'd been the original dot-com era, so I had a company called LookSmart, which had done reasonably well for some investors, and they were prepared to back me. Uh, and so we raised, uh, off the business plan, we raised, in, in the Australian context, a reasonable amount of money, $2 million off a business plan, uh, and that allowed us to, to, to get that initial traction. Redbubble then became 
self-funding relatively quickly. We had a, the first few years were a little bit challenging for us and we raised some additional money from private investors. We had that first sort of sign of traction, that first growth which the investors were, were looking for. And then after about 2010, we had uh, what's called negative working capital. That What that means is that we were collecting the money up front and then we were distributing to others. And the real advantage that gives you, it allows you the business to become self-funding the contrast to that is companies which are some companies which are great businesses have got very long sales cycles, so you're having to invest a lot of money up front in those mm. companies, and that and that can be very challenging for an entrepreneur having uh, what's called positive working capital, which sounds sounds like the good thing. It's actually the bad thing. Positive working capital is, means you need to have a lot of money in order for the business to become self-funding. Mm, I see. So you mentioned LookSmart. So that was your first company. You founded it, co-founded. Uh, I was I was part of the founding team there yes. at LookSmart. Yes. And it was in Melbourne, or you uh, you Mel- did some time in overseas, right? Oh, that's yeah. Right. So, so tell us about that. Well, my very first job was I had a job as a diplomat with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and so served over, overseas with with Foreign Affairs and Trade for seven years. I came back and had a couple of years. I did an MBA and I had a couple of years with McKinsey as a consultant, the international consulting firm. Yep. Um, then when the dot com era came along, I saw this. I sort of said, "This is really this is in '95," and I, I said. This is technology is just going to change this the world. It's not even a technology; it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a fundamental platform change. Uh, it's going to change the world, and so I wanted to become involved with that. Uh, and so, LookSmart and a couple of friends had just started what was a sort of predecessor company to LookSmart, and then I joined along with that. And we was with uh, LookSmart right through to two thousand and one, and spent the last three or four years in uh, in San Francisco with with LookSmart. I see, and. That company exited. Uh, uh, that company went through that that whole boom bust <laughs> cycle. So it had that was a you know like a lot of companies in that then the original dot com era, you know, it was a company which was looking for a business model other than just taking money from investors and never really found it. So it uh, it was you know like the, the legion of companies which didn't make it out of the dot com era. I I think of LookSmart primarily as a failure. Uh, I learned a lot of it, things, but the three things which I did learn, which may be relevant to your audience. Mm-hmm. And which I really applied to Redbubble was you need to have absolute clarity about who your customer is. It's starting a business and not knowing who your customer is you're serving is really hard. And and it's amazing how often people do this. They have a technology and they think, oh, we'll find the customer for it. Mm. So clarity about who the customer was. I wanted clarity about what the strategy was. And the strategy in this context is, you know, what is the big environment which you're operating in? In our context, it was print on demand technology. That's a strategic context which I thought was going to be meaningful for Redbubble. And and finally, you need to have a view about how you're going to make money. There's still Silicon Valley companies who haven't got clarity on that third thing. They you can make it work for a while, but eventually the music stops, and you need to know where the money's going to be. Mm. And you know, it's funny. I, you you wouldn't know this, but when I first started Founder, so I've been running Founder for two and a half years. When I first started Founder, I was looking for answers, mm. and I went to a talk at Melbourne University, and I heard you speak, and that's where I first heard about Red Bubble, yeah. and you were talking about. The concept of lean. Yes. Because it was at a lean startup event and I was just mm-hmm. starting to find out about lean. How have you used the lean lean startup, like the lean, I guess, methodology of mm-hmm. lean manufacturing to red bubble and how has it allowed you guys to excel? Yeah. Lean's interesting and it's a sort of like a lot of ideas which get a lot of traction quite quickly. It's clearly it's uh, filling a segment. And like some ideas though, that as a while it gets tested and you find out what's working about it and what's not working and how it applies to your individual situation. 
the key, there's a number of things which are critical about Lean, but the thing which I most like about it is it puts the customer at the center of how you think about developing things. You test something, you trial it, and you trial it with a customer as soon as you possibly can. And the feedback, and you, and you try and understand what the feedback is which you're getting from that customer. That's the great thing about it. And, and, and that notion of a quick cycle where you, you, you learn, test, and, and you refine back into the cycle. So that's what I really like about Lean is the idea of having the customer at the center of what you're doing and genuinely trying to hear you know, that customer. And people will say that the customer is at the center, but they're actually not trying to, they're actually still trying to talk to the or tell the customer that they should be doing something other than what they want to do. And I'm always surprised by, you know, even really big companies, let me just give a quick one before I'll finish the conversation on Lean. You know, Google decided to launch Google Plus. Users didn't need Google Plus. They already had Facebook. So <laughs> you didn't need, you know, the customer was not at the center of that huge strategic orientation and, it's, and they've really struggled to make it work. So even very big companies can make this mistake. But the one thing I'll say that you do need to factor into Lean and is that the customer doesn't always know what they want and they don't always have a, a view to the future as well. Mm. And so you need, to have, you need to have Lean as a way of testing what you do, but you need to have a good strategic orientation Okay, let's assume this. Now, and in the context of Redbubble, for example, the customers, you know, our customers are beginning to understand what is now possible. They're beginning to understand that they can get the products into their lives, which have got objects which are meaningful on them. But if you're really used, if you got into a behavioral mindset of actually not thinking about finding that stuff, actually, you didn't know it was possible to buy, you know, a T-shirt for your grandchild with the, you know, image of Pluto, the planet on it, you know, you don't get into that mindset. And so we, what, we're, what, what there is in the component of listening to the customer's underlying needs, yes. having a strategy which is based around that, but also getting ahead of it a bit. And there is a bit of a tendency I've seen in some lean research is it actually devolves into what's the lowest common denominator response from the customers and not getting to genuinely trying to think, oh, well, how can we take it beyond what the customers thinks possible to what we know could be possible? Because mm, that's something that actually, it's funny you say that because I interviewed Steve Blank, like a few months ago, but then there's that other side of the table, like what you say, like that's something, that's something Steve Jobs, you always used to say is, Customers don't know what they want until you show it to them. Yeah. So it's a very fine line, I guess, that you have to. Yeah, I think it, I, I don't think they're in contradiction to be to be quite honest, because you know Steve Jobs was quite right in the sense that customers until you show, but he had a sense of what the customers felt was important, and you could test those ideas. You know, do the customers want a simple interface? Is this interface working for them? And 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 you know, and in the case of Apple, for example, one of their core customers is that they are their first users of their products, and they use them ubiquitously, and they use them because they want to use them, and so they're constantly testing them on themselves. That's a very good way of thinking about your first customer. In the case of Redbubble, we were our first customers. I'm always very skeptical of companies which are trying to make something for somebody else. We used to call, don't be a vegan making hamburgers. Like you're not going to know how to do that thing well. And for startups particularly, you know, if you're really trying to imagine something making something for somebody else who's not you, it's really hard. Now, you know, some products, you know, I don't get, for example, or didn't get, I probably get it now, Snapchat. You know, Snapchat. Yeah, ah. you know, that's an example of a product. But they did get it. They understood how that, what the use case was because they were that use case, you know, and, mm. that's, and that's an example of making the thing for yourself in the first instance and gradually making it more relevant to, to other people in, in successive waves. Mm. I'm curious, you, I read somewhere that Redbubble had some hard times. Yes. Can you tell us about that? Because the life of a startup founder isn't easy. No. Take us back. You know, take us back even to like an actual point in time, a memory, a story. Mm. 
that you experienced that was really tough? And tell yeah. us about it. Yes, well, I can tell you we're coming up to Christmas now, uh, and <laughs> I'm not sure when this is going to air, I guess about now. The Redbubble uh, Christmas, our first Christmas was a bit of a shock to us. We'd sort of forgotten about it. We forgot it was going to come until about October or November. And then somebody said, oh, Christmas is going to come. We better think about what we're going to do. So in our first Christmas, uh, we, we just launched T-shirts as a product line, but our manufacturing partner decided to go on holiday, you know, about a week before Christmas. So all we had all of these orders for products which we couldn't actually ship. And the and we had to send one of the the person who'd been working with us went over there and was physically printing the own t the t-shirts for the customers uh, in response to that. So that was an example of that was a tough Christmas. The second Christmas actually managed to get worse in some ways um, because and it was during the peak of the, the, the global financial crisis. Well, the global financial was just beginning to hit, and uh, we had with our manufacturing in Germany and the euro was was doing very well and if we lost money on every single t-shirt which we shipped because they were they're costing us more to manufacture than we could actually sell them for so that was bad uh, and then third christmas we thought things would go, were getting better because we thought we could manufacture them and we thought we could uh, manufacture profitably and but the only thing we hadn't counted for was the gfc then truly hit and america shut down its borders and we couldn't actually get through customs thing we couldn't get things through customs oh, wow. and so everything was delayed and so every christmas january was just a nightmare as we tried to sort out with customers and comp them and give them vouchers and try and recover these customers and that's you know that was because it was a very complicated system so this christmas we've got i've got a dashboard <laughs> which shows all of the production partners with all of the things which are where they are and all this stuff one of the challenges though is you look at it i look at it now and you say well, it's like, wouldn't it have been lovely to have that, you know, seven years ago? And the answer is, of course, it would be lovely. And you're and, and startup founders, we talk about tough things. Is they'll have boards who will say, oh, I'll do all of these seven things or seventy things more like it. And choosing the things to do which are actually meaningful is the real challenge which you have because you can do so. You can well, you can got a lot of choices and you've got very limited resources. And you know, I used to think of it as you know, when I was younger, we used to. I had three brothers, and we used to always play it. The, the game of sort of whether you could escape from being tied up by your brothers, you, they tie you up in different, and you used to just find a way of undoing it just slightly to get a little bit of leverage to undo these knots. Uh, and this, and I used to think of that was what it was like as a startup, finding a little bit of leverage to get a bit of bit of mm. space to make the thing work. You know, should I be investing in PR or should I be investing in online marketing? Should I invite hire some new in the web dev team? Those are really difficult choices for a startup. Mm. So, you know, during that period, what kept you going how do you know when to give up how do you know when to pivot or, or change up the strategy you know when the if, if the business model is not a viable business model how do you work that out what kept you guys going like it sounds like that would be pretty tough if if you know like you said it was like how you describe some startups where they're you know paying for to acquire a customer but they haven't you know had any margin yeah it it is difficult, and I think that there's and pivoting was a it was a fa, it was a favourite word for a while. I, don't, I think it's fallen out of a favourite a little bit nowadays. Pivoting, and the challenge for us for for any founder is that you know it's a balance between passion and focus, and you but you have to have some realism in there as well. And I I meet founders who've been going at the same thing for five, ten, fifteen years, and I think to myself. Really, it was time to hang up the boots a few years ago. You know, you really, this is, you know, I get it. I get it that you got the passion and the focus and, and somebody's told you that's exactly what you need to be a founder. It's absolutely true. You do need it. You know, you do need to be, have that element of unrealistic passion as well to get there. But you do need to, you have to factor into that a view about what success looks like at any given point. 
And that means that you do need to say, you know, what are the ways in which I'm going to think about success? And it will change. You know, in the early days for Redbubble, we were confident that the thing was working because the artists were telling us it was working. They were telling how passionate they were about it. And they were, and we had the usage stats which showed that these people, group of people are really engaged and deeply engaged and want to upload work and want to continue to upload work. And so we had that, 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 that positive feedback and we had enough of it for it to counter concerns which we may have had on, on, on how the consumers, we took a while for the consumers to find the site with the same degree of passion. So there's that positive element. And I think that there's, there's what's really important for the founder here, founders to be doing is sharing their experience with other people who are more experienced and looking for the gold there in that, that pan. And other people who are more experienced will say, well, yes, things don't seem to be going well, along well, but this data here suggests that you actually genuinely have some real traction with some people who are really liking it. If you don't have that stuff, if all you've got at the end of a period of time, it's whatever period of time it is, is just you know something which you yourself are just liking or you yourself think, then I think you have to be pretty honest with yourself as well. And this, and it's hard to be both honest and passionate because passion is almost the emotion that, that operates against honesty. But you do need to find that within yourself to almost have a binary view to think with to maintain the passion which also be able to look at yourself okay but is this is this genuine is there enough data coming in here to suggest this is going to be viable yeah because i think it is a really fine line to know when to keep going and mm. when to give up and uh it's a it's a hard one to know you just don't know you could persist or you know and and you ha- i think it is you know talking to people i don't there's lots of people who are not worthwhile talking to to be honest you know <laughs> yeah. your, your mum's not a good one you <laughs> yeah. know your mum's going to tell you you're a genius probably and this is the best thing that it's the best thing she's ever seen but you know there are other people who are good at talk- who you can talk to who say you know this is how i would expect this thing to be looking if i was expecting things to work and the trouble with you know founders we get into becoming founders because we have the capacity to be unrealistically determined, you know, or to be to, to be you know have that determination to go beyond what is what the, what is normal. But how you make sure that you actually balance that with a little bit of insight into into yourself and to what's actually going on is important. Because yes, you also can give up too early, and you can and you can you know and and you see things that you know when when we we all I remember back in the day when, when Mark Zuckerberg was offered a billion dollars from Yahoo for <laughs> Facebook, you know, we all thought he was mad for not taking it, you know, but he had the capacity to see what was possible within that and probably also was conscious enough of what the data was telling him about how his users were actively engaging with it and could imagine a future in which much more people were engaging with this you know right now with in the case of Redbubble the future is really easily to imagine where most people under the age of 35 own a Redbubble product of some sort and, and are repeatedly shopping there because I can imagine that future it, it, it doesn't require a lot of imagination so with 15 million images you know in a few years time it'll be 30 million images everybody on the planet should be able to find something which is relevant to them on Redbubble. So that future is easy to imagine. So it's quite relatively easy to imagine how you go to, from where we are now to you know, a, a, you know, to a much much more significant company. But you have to sort of have that balance of seeing what the data is saying and seeing what, the, what that data would say to you about the future. Mm, yeah, there's a lot there I'd like to unpack. Mm. The first one is you said around drawing from other people's experiences. And I think that's so true. Especially in the like you know Silicon Valley, the reason that they ha- I think they have that cluster is because they have that experience yeah. there. Who do you learn from? We're here in Melbourne, Australia. You know we've got some really cool, you know, really big tech startups like Ninety Nine Designs, 
Atlassian in Sydney. Yeah. Like, who do you learn from? Who 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 are you drawing experience from? There, there are a group of people here. It's it's getting a little bit bigger. So there's a Dean Barto, which is down the road. Oh yeah, Invato Collis, he's great. Yeah, I've interviewed him too. Yeah. So he, you know, so there's uh, there's those folks, and then there's the original marketplaces which came out of Australia, the Seek and R at realestate.com. Yeah. So those marketplaces, and you know, and and. It's actually easy enough to say, I know, you know, Collis Day and Edvato yeah. and I know uh, um, Lee Jasper of Aconex and I know yeah. Mark Harbottle down at 99 Designs and, and, and Paul Bassett over at, uh, at, you know, so you actually know these people. You know, I don't think, you know, do I talk to them on a regular basis? Occasionally, Collis, Collis and I have a sort of relatively similar but more comp- competitive product so we can actually talk about what their experiences and what how he thinks about it uh, and he's insightful there. I think probably the most important thing for me, though, is, board um you know the board comprises uh you know stephanie talanius who was uh, early at ebay early on and has got a lot of experience on how ebay scaled yeah uh, my chair is richard causey who scaled a number of different companies and, and so having an, an experienced board and then we've just had greg lockwood who's invested he's done investing in marketplaces for through his fund for many years and so he's got experience there as well so i think that that for me probably the board's the most important thing uh and getting a, a good board which you're genuinely reporting to early on i'm actually quite in favor of it, to be honest i know a number of founders shy away from that and they sort of think that oh the board's going to be heavy and i hope oh they don't want to have my i'm i had a board from the very start which we was there and making sure it's being lightweight early on is almost yeah. an advisory board, yeah. not really advisory, or more a sort of an engaged board who actually can help you with very specific things is, is a good thing to do. So they, they were probably my most important just because of the response, the breadth which they bring to that as well. So you think founders should definitely, you know, once they get a bit of traction, things seem, seem to be going well, you've kind of got that market, I guess that maybe some, some form of validation, you think founders should look to set up some form of a board, like yeah. an advisory board, yeah? Yeah, I, 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 would, I would do a board earlier on, early rather than later. Yep. I think it's, it introduces discipline into the company. It, it may be a good way of getting an investor involved, have them on the board, provided they're a good, good, they're a good investor, don't get anybody. I would say sort of avoid getting onto the board people who are going to be, you know, excessively. I wouldn't have a board of accountants or lawyers. Not that I don't like accountants or lawyers, but I don't think they add a lot of value to an early stage company. A board which comprises of, of other entrepreneurs who have done it before. And I know that, you know, a number of us in Australian context are now getting involved in other startup boards as well. You know, it's one of the things which people tend to, do is a way of giving back a bit yeah Mm, yeah that's right and what are your thoughts on funded you know self-funded versus raising capital i think it's really about horses for courses to be honest you know there's some businesses which can can self-fund they're they're the luckiest of them all or luckiest or cleverest you know atlassian managed to self-fund really and I know Colestay and Vato, he's self-funded. We couldn't self-fund just because there were too many moving parts. You know, we had physical products we had to deal with. So self-funding yeah. wasn't wasn't impossible, but we didn't have to raise a lot of money. The thing which I am skeptical of is I think that a number of good ideas have been killed in Silicon Valley through too much money. Uh, and yeah. it sounds a little bit, you know, I know in Silicon Valley people think of the idea of raising 40 or 50 or 30 or some huge million dollars to be an achievement in itself. It's not. You know, yeah. raising money is not a success. Raising money is just that you just raise the bar of what success actually looks like for you as a company. 
And, you know, the problem with raising a lot of money early on is that you have to try and spend that wisely. And I know good companies which have failed as a consequence of just raising too much money. But probably the famous, the best example is fab.com. You know, mm. I don't know whether people remember fab. I thought it was a great, good idea. I thought it was a really nice idea around having high quality curated designs. They raised $200 million, tried to spend it, tried to pivot a number of times. And, you know, they took a good idea and they killed it uh, through too much money. And that's quite common. Mm. Okay, look, we have to work towards wrapping up. A few more questions. Three things I want to cover still. One, it seems like you've built an amazing culture at Redbubble. Mm. How do you foster that culture? What are some things that you guys, like you would recommend to founders, especially like, you know, with someone that has a small founding team, what are the kinds of things you can do if you don't have the money? Like you guys have got amazing offices, mm. you know, it's like you do amazing yeah. stuff. Like, what can you do if you don't have much money like to, to build an amazing culture in your, in your company? And the culture is not about the money. It, you know, you could, you could have hot and cold running dinners. You could have, you know, drinks on, on, on a Monday morning and it wouldn't make any difference. Your, your culture, it's not going to improve or your culture. Your culture is really about how people uh, relate to the purpose of the company primarily. And I think you've got, to have, you've got to have coherence around what the purpose, what is it the thing? And by purpose, I don't mean making money or, or getting to the next funding round or whatever. That is. What is the thing? What is the reason why this thing exists in the, in the world? And then you've got to recruit people for people who, who believe in that purpose. And you won't get a good culture if there's a, if there's a lack of sync between the two. Um, for Redbubble, it's relatively easy because our purpose is actually clear and it's actually also, you know, it's easy to embrace the idea of bringing individual art and creativity into everybody's lives. That's an easy purpose to embrace and, and supporting independent artists and so we recruit for people who identify with that and so we have arts related events and we have artists in residence and all of those sorts of things we've got offices which reflect that sort of diversity just taking another but if you if you, your purpose of the company needs to be clear and then you need to get people who are aligned around that purpose so you know in the case of snapchat you know, I wouldn't if I was recruiting for Snapchat, and I don't get Snapchat or didn't get Snapchat until relatively recently. I wouldn't have a person in the office who wasn't using it, who didn't have a good use case for that for that product. You know, if you if uh, in the case of Aconex, which is a company down the road, which provides um, a software solution for construction and building projects, they interview for people who think that that is an important thing to do. They understand why this is important, why collaboration is important. Uh, at Lassen, who we talked about. Working in teams is fundamental to how they think about that. So Atlassian does not recruit people who's, who don't want to work in teams. And yeah. there's some people who don't want to work in teams. You know, you have to have, so, and that's at the core of how they think about things. So I think you have to have the purpose and you recruit around that. And then a good culture will begin to emerge. But a good culture is not something which you spread on the top of a company like a thin veneer after the event. <laughs> it's something which has to exist at the heart of it. And I'm always, I'm surprised that you can actually get good cultures, even out of relatively tricky ideas by bringing a different, a lot, different view to it. So Zappos is an example of that. Mm. Zappos is renowned as having a great culture. They deliver shoes. You know, it's not it like this is not doesn't in and of itself sound like a meaningful idea. But the way in which you know they've they've, they've thought about that is about the idea of it should be more than shoes. It actually should be the full experience of shopping here and create something which is. And then they, and they've embedded that in the organisation. So that's how you think about it and make sure you embed that purpose in the organisation. Mm. Okay. Two more questions. One: What sacrifices have you had to make? as a founder to get where you are today? Like, mm. you know, Redbubble, what, are you able to talk? Like predicted revenue, are you able to talk? Yeah, yeah, like, I can, like, give, like, you, I can yeah. give some sense of Redbubble. Because yeah. um, you guys, like as far as, you know, I spoke with Carolyn, like, and what yeah. I mean, you guys are doing really well. Like you guys are doing great. 
Yeah. So this year, Redbubble, the the sales through the website will be over $150 million or thereabouts, about, you know, around in the range of $150 million. You know, another statistic, though, which is probably even more meaningful, is that, you know, artists on Redbubble this year will earn more from Redbubble than they'll earn in grants from the Australian Council. Total, all grants of visual arts in Australia is about $23 million. So artists on, on Redbubble will earn a lot more than that through Redbubble. So, you know, it's a meaning, making a more meaningful contra- contribution to artists and creators than the Australian Council is doing for the visual and the grants of the visual arts. You know, those are meaningful, important, important numbers. Wow. Um, you know, in, in terms of the scale of the site, you know, we've got, uh, I guess, this month, you, you know, have 12, 13 million unique visitors a month to the site. So uh, that's, I think it makes it bigger than, I don't know, I don't know many, many other Australian properties at that sort of scale. And, you know, two million odd customers shopped with us last year. So, you yeah, know, wow. the, thing, the, thing is, the thing is operating at a, at a certain sort of scale. But these things don't happen overnight. And the one thing, I, I, I guess, on this point, and it also relates to the early point, one of the things is to recognise that people, until relatively use, recently, used to think of companies as taking, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years to start getting traction, getting good. It's only very recently people said, oh, it needs to be successful in three or four years. The number of companies which genuinely, truly get to success in a shorter period of time than five years is very, very limited. The venture capital community loves those companies. We as founders have to be very wary of that idea because it's very disruptive to it's disruptive how you think about what you're doing. You think about the thing long term, recognize that you are going to be doing this for a while and don't, you know, don't actually try and put in the 24-hour days. Sometimes you have to put in you know, the 15, 16-hour days for a period of time. But if you're doing that for a really long period of time, you've got a problem in your business model and if you're asking that of a lot of your staff for you, then there's a problem so recognizing the thing's going to take time be comfortable with the idea that i'm going to you know the biggest problem with starting out with on going on a marathon is if you start off as a sprint you know and by mm. the time you got to the first hundred yards you're wondering how you're going to run the last 26 miles you know but if you started off as a marathon you're actually going to get there and so for, for founders in particular who and recognizing that your interests are not aligned with the interests of the venture capital community or the people who may fund you early on who want to get in and out as quickly as humanly possible. You're going to be here doing this same thing probably for more than 10 years. So take that attitude towards it and build your life in a way which allow and enables that to be. And then you'll actually begin to, the thing will work and you'll actually be able to do the thing relatively smoothly. I find it quite, you know, disturbing and almost distressing when you see, you know, founders who have just had a, a bucket load of money poured into the thing and suddenly they have to, operate this thing at hyper speed you know and this is you know that's what's the problem with fab and you could go run through the list of good companies which have been overfunded and have to operate in order they're no longer running the agenda for themselves what they what they're actually there is to prove whether or not this amount of money can be spent as quickly as humanly possible in order to generate an outcome for a for an investor so what they're actually there is an experiment on the part of the, they're part of somebody else's AB test, mm. you know, as a, as a, you know, in essence, you know, mm. they're part of somebody's te- market testing. About this thing. As a founder, this should not be an experiment for you. This is something which you're trying to sort of bend the arc of the universe, and so you got to you commit to doing that over a period of time. And and if you do that, you'll bring have the right attitude towards it, and also you'll survive. Mm. Okay, so I'm curious, you know. You- you guys been around for nine years or mm-hmm. ten, close to ten? Yeah, coming up for well, it'll be ten years next year. But the site launch, uh, nine, the launch of the site, second of February next year. Yeah. Okay, so you guys been running the marathon. You're doing very well, but I'm sure that there must be some key things 
that, and this is kind of like my last question, mm. and it kind of ties into some action items that, that our audience can take away. Like, what are some key things that you've done to take Redbubble to where it is today that makes you effective? Mm-hmm. Like, what give us like maybe three things that really, really have, have been the key to your success, made you a really, really effective founder, and some actual things that you think every single one of our audience can take away and look to implement. Or uh, even if it's just a mindset, you yeah. know? Well, I can actually give you some, some practical things. The first thing is you are going to make mistakes. So you're going to screw up. Things are going to go wrong. Redbubble has made a number of critical mistakes. Every single company I've ever heard of has launched things which are broken, has launched things which don't work, launched things that the customers doesn't like, whatever it happens to be. So what, are, what allows you to survive those mistakes? Because some mistakes will kill you as a company and some mistakes won't. The thing which, as I've thought about it over the years, the most important thing when you think about mistakes is you've got to have, and this may tie into your earlier question about how you know the thing, whether it's going to work. You've got to have a group of customers who are passionate about this. It does not have to be a very, very large group of customers. You know, there's, a, there's some of the venture, I know um, there was an interview where I think Sequoia was talking about a hair on fire problem. It, uh, people who've got a problem which is large enough for them to be able to suffer through that they have to deal with. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the mistake is thinking, oh, everybody has to have that hair on fire problem. No, they don't. But they do have to have, they have to be a group of people who are passionate about you and they will forgive you your mistakes. You know, and so, you know, if you're going at your thing for a, a reasonable period of time and you have not found some customers who are caring deeply, deeply about what you do, then you've got a problem. You, and, and, and it's not good enough to have a lot of customers, a, a large number of customers who are, care a little bit about what you do because you're not making enough difference in their lives for it to be launched. All of us. The world out there does not care about your success. Remember that as a founder. Remember that as a founder. <laughs> they don't care. They don't want you to win. They, they, that's, not their, that's not their purpose in life. So you've got to find a group of people who've got a problem, which you're solving their problem for. And if you're solving that problem well enough, they'll forgive you your other mistakes. And so that's, that's a measure of whether, you know, whether or not it's a good time to give up. If you make a mistake and, and it's critical, then probably you don't have enough people who are passionate about you. About you, so that's the first thought, which I'll, I'll leave with people: is make sure you've found those customers who really care about what you are and what you're doing. And we found that in the creatives very early on. The second thing, which I'll say in this as well, is to know whether or not the thing is going to work or to take away. Is uh, and this is I think applies to everybody, but I maybe not all instances. But to think about what you're doing more as an ecosystem than a set of features or a set of products. And then what I mean by that is that you know, you're getting out there in the world and around what you are doing is creating, is, is a group of people who are beginning to think this is important. Those may be your customers. In our cons- in our instance, it's the customers, it's the creatives, it's the uh, fulfillment partners. And there are other people involved in that ecosystem, including your employees. And thinking about how you nurture this thing to make it actually begin to work better and trying not to introduce things into the ecosystem which are destructive. And I see a number, again, I've seen a number of websites over the years, and you see these, you see examples of this um, most recently with um, Reddit. You know, yeah. good ecosystem, working well. They made some changes into the ecosystem which caused really serious problems and caused them to lose. They thought it was good in their interests. It was not in the interests of the ecosystem as a whole. And so thinking about not just what you're doing from your perspective, but you're showing some empathy for what the for what the ecosystem as a whole is doing. 
and this will come to my third thing. Once you've sort of you've identified your customers are passionate about it, you're thinking about how those customers work in an ecosystem as a as a whole. Then you then you actually want to think about well, what are the really small number of things which are going to make the most difference to benefiting that ecosystem? This is where some real insight comes in. You know, it's very easy to think of, oh, we should be having a PR campaign or we should be spending more on paid advertising or we should introduce it. What are those things which most benefit that group of customers with a hair on fire problem, most contribute to the self of the ecosystem, and then those are the things which you will do. And don't try and do everything. Don't do with the other things because you will have a group of people who will be talking to you. You're bored. They will have experience and they will have probably had, had sites which work which or ecosystems where they've done that. And what worked for them, whether or not that was, you know, spending money on a booth at, you know, Comic-Con, that may have worked for them. That doesn't mean it's going to work for you. And so you've got to think through and the, the lens to think through it is the customers and the ecosystem. And then you will start to identify, oh, we need to, the, the, what we do with the website is the most important thing. Or we should be paying or we should be recruiting more creators or we should be launching a physical camp. But thinking about those things which most contribute because then you have a chance of success. Awesome. Well, look, um, thank you so much, Martin. That was fantastic. You're Absolute welcome. pleasure. Okay, good. Awesome. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.